This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. What's the thing that you're most passionate about in the world? Is it a hobby, a sport that you have to watch every week? Or it could be protecting future generations from the impacts of climate change. Maybe it's that, because there are some teenagers in Australia that have been leading this fight for years, and now they're speaking out about the toll it's taken. In a bit, we're going to chat to one of these young advocates about their advocacy, what they're trying to do now. Later, we're also exploring Australia's history of massive music fandom, the big performances that felt like they stopped the country. Because everyone's talking about Taylor at the moment, we get that, but we're looking at how her tour compares with some of the biggest that have hit our shores. First, though. Hack. You can't be happy when you're home on fire. On Triple J. Yeah, this weekend marks the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And there really is no end in sight. Like earlier this week, we spoke about Russia's uh, progression in the war and how the president, Vladimir Putin, has vowed to push further into Ukraine. It's meant that Ukrainians who've sought refuge in Australia won't be able to go home anytime soon. That's clear. But for a lot of those people who are here, their visas to stay actually expire next year and it's causing them a lot of stress. To explain the situation, here's our reporter April McLennan. As we go to air tonight, Ukraine is under full-scale Russian assault. Explosions and air raid sirens have been heard in several Ukrainian cities, including the capital, Kiev. Anyone who tries to stop us and threaten our country and people should know Russia's response will be immediate and lead to consequences you have never faced in your history. Minutes after this declaration, explosions rang out across Ukrainian cities as Russia launched a full-scale invasion. It's been two years, and the Ukrainians who were forced to flee to other countries are still trying to rebuild their lives. People uh, outside Ukraine from other countries have an image like um, of uh, some life frozen in time and space waiting for us back home that defrosts uh, immediately or after war ends. The reality is that the life we had is shattered. Lisa Marianne is from southern Ukraine and she says her city was continuously shelled and attacked. She's now in Australia. It has been a really intense experience rebuilding my life here, finding myself here because I didn't expect to ever visit Australia in my life. But, well, here I am. And, yeah, it is a big change from Ukraine. Vlad Guz was asleep in his apartment in Kiev when he woke to the sounds of explosions and people screaming. He also made the tough decision to move to Australia, leaving his loved ones behind. I'm trying to call my family every day just to make sure they're still alive. Just because my hometown is located 20 kilometers from the front line and that's why it's very dangerous there. They're constantly bombed and I personally know a few people who died recently because of the bombings. Temporary humanitarian visas were offered to displaced Ukrainians who arrived in the country right after the launch of Russia's full-scale invasion. More than 3,500 Ukrainians and their immediate family members are holding this type of visa, including Lisa and Vlad. But the visas expire next year. Because their visa is expiring in almost uh, a year, they're finding it very difficult to... um 
to get jobs because they don't have that visa certainty. Then there is a problem with their children, for example, not being accepted into university because the length of the visa is not long enough. Therefore, uh, they're ineligible to apply for some courses. Katerina Agru is the co-chair of the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organization. She says a lot of Ukrainians here in Australia are anxious about being deported. They went through escaping a country that was being bombed and having missiles ran over their head, trying to get their kids over the border by foot. They've come to the other side of the world. They have just settled into whether it's a, a new location, a new school, new friends, new language. Most of these people are just learning English. And then all of a sudden, just as they settle in, they don't know whether they will be uprooted again. Katarina tells me some of the Ukrainians have applied for permanent protection visas, which would let them stay in Australia permanently, but a lot of those applications are still being processed. But they're still in limbo because they don't know when and if they will get that permanent protection visa. We were told that it could take anywhere from three to ten years, so that also adds to the uncertainty and anxiety. Very difficult to plan life. Since 2022, the Australian government says it's granted over 12,000 mostly temporary visas to Ukrainians. The Department of Home Affairs told Hack it's continuing to progress visa applications from Ukraine nationals as a priority. But the department didn't answer Hack's questions about whether it plans to create a pathway for permanent residency for all Ukrainians who've come to Australia. For Vlad and Lisa, that's worrying. Sometimes I cannot sleep because I'm worried about it. And I go to a therapist to discuss this question because I'm afraid going back to Ukraine and my hometown is close to the front line. It's very, very contaminated with explosive particles. I, I just have no way back. So I will have to create some way forward for myself, but I can't imagine restarting my life again. And it's gonna be, it's gonna be, I don't know how it's gonna, I, I, I have no idea what I would do if this happened, to be honest. There is no plan B. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. I do want to shift the focus now from Ukrainians here in Australia, their fight to stay in this country, to set up their lives, to what is happening to ordinary people still in Ukraine. The impact of the war, because we know hundreds of thousands of soldiers on both sides have been killed. What is going on with civilians? Well, John Richardson is a former diplomat, a visiting fellow at ANU's Centre for European Studies. He knows a lot about this region and he's with us now to chat. John, thank you very much for your time, for coming on Hack. Do we have any idea about how many Ukrainians have died in this war? Uh, no, look, it's not particularly clear for various reasons. United Nations has what they call verified figures. That's around 10,000 civilians, Ukrainian civilians, dead. But they stress that that's just the tip of the iceberg and it could be many times more. And... The reason for that is that most of the deaths have been in cities such as Mariupol, which had a population of nearly half a million before the war and was largely flattened. The death toll there could be in the tens of thousands. In fact, a Ukrainian filmmaker working for a press agency, uh, he estimates unmarked graves and body collections and all of this, it could be as high as 70, 70 or 80,000 deaths in that place alone. But the UN has got 
uh, zero cooperation from the Russian authorities in trying to establish just who has been killed behind uh, the lines on the Russian side. So, you know, some people say the estimates could be 100,000 Ukrainian civilians dead or or high. Is there also an incentive for the Ukraine Ukrainian side not to publicise the sheer numbers of Ukrainians killed for various reasons in terms of morale and that kind of thing? Yes, I think so. I mean, they, neither side publishes much information about their military deaths. I think people that I've contacted about this have been a bit shy about it and can't say for sure, but I suspect that it is a question of being concerned about civilian morale. But the surveys in Ukraine done by fairly reputable people say that on average, well, about 80% of people surveyed in Ukraine knew someone, relatives or close friends, who had been killed in the war. So that's four out of five people. Everyone has obviously been affected quite highly, so I'm not sure why the Ukrainian government hasn't been more forthcoming about that. John, what kind of impact has this war had on young Ukrainians in particular? Well, David, the young people, of course, have been affected in some of the same ways as others. Displacement, deaths in their close circle, economic opportunities lost, losing jobs. I think there's about 4,000 schools, kindergartens, universities damaged, uh, nearly 400 completely destroyed. But you've also seen a growing proportion that don't wish to leave the country to, to emigrate from Ukraine. And also very strong participation in volunteering activities and things like that, not just joining up to fight, but also volunteering to do community activities. In that sense, the war has had a particularly galvanising effect on, on young people as well. And I should add in the areas behind occupied lines where uh, Russian forces are in control, education has really been affected to the extent that Ukrainian curriculum and, and even instruction in Ukrainian is being replaced by curriculum run and imposed from Moscow. That is a direct effect on what people can learn. When there's several conflicts playing out in different parts of the world, often you see lots of comparisons being made and uh, perhaps that's happening now with Ukraine, with Gaza as well. Do you see that as problematic? Oh, look, it's problematic if people start dismissing or minimising what's happened in Ukraine. Useful for people, as I have done, just to try to bring to people's attention that, you know, don't forget this war as well. I mean, there's understandable reasons why Gaza has taken up a lot of attention and lots of concerns about the civilian population there and the need for a ceasefire. But in Ukraine, it's it's going on and a lot of it under the radar, as it were, not really in the media because it's behind uh, occupied lines. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with John Richardson, a visiting fellow with ANU's Centre for European Studies, a former diplomat who knows a lot about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, in Russia. We're speaking about the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. John, you've written about cultural erasure happening in Ukraine. Can you explain what that is and give us some examples of what's going on? Well, it's an essentially an effort to impose Russian culture and language and identity across the areas of Ukraine that are occupied by Russian forces. Uh, that's an area about a fifth of Ukraine's territory and was home to nearly 10 million people uh, before the full-scale invasions. It's not just 
a case of occupying these territories, but they've been annexed and made into part of Russia, formerly in their constitution and in their laws. And part of this is a belief amongst Russian nationalists that Ukraine isn't a proper country, that it's a sort of artificial creation and that Ukrainians are really long-lost brothers who've been somehow separated by evil outside forces, which is complete myth. John, it's not just about the war that's happening now. Obviously, we have to think about what happens after this, whatever happens. How do you rebuild a part of the world that's just been decimated over the past couple of years? Are there any estimates or idea of how much infrastructure is being destroyed, how much it would cost to rebuild Ukraine? Yes, well, the World Bank has just put out an assessment, the amount of damage done and the cost of rebuilding it. And that came to 486 billion US dollars, three times the size of the Ukrainian economy, its gross domestic product last year. So you can, there's a huge amount to be done. And, you know, you've had uh, over 1,500 attacks on health facilities, hospitals, pharmacies, clinics, and most of those were by heavy weapons. And a lot of them just destroyed completely. Over 8,000 kilometres of roads damaged, uh, 10% of the housing stock. So huge numbers across the board in all sectors, as well as on top of all the human suffering. So yeah, a huge amount of damage that will require a a huge international effort. There has been a lot of funding committed to help with rebuilding already, but it's probably still a drop in the ocean of what will be required. John Richardson, academic, former diplomat. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you very much, Dave. Hack. They felt like they have just thrown themselves against this brick wall continuously and not been heard. On Triple J. You might remember a big court case that made headlines around the world a few years ago. The federal court found that the government had a duty of care to protect young people from the climate crisis. But then the government appealed that decision and that judgment was overturned. The young people leading that fight were, of course, disappointed, but they haven't stopped since that court case. They're still fighting for the government to be more accountable for the future of young people. And independent Senator David Pocock is trying to get a bill passed at the moment that would mean politicians would need to consider the well-being of future generations when making decisions likely to contribute to climate change, stuff like opening new coal mines, for example. Someone who's working with the Senator on this is Anjali Sharma. Now, she was the one leading that court case a few years ago. We've spoken to her on Hack before, and she's with us now to talk about what's going on at the moment. Anjali, welcome back to Hack. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's so lovely to be here. Can you explain what this amendment is and what you're hoping to change? Yeah, okay. So this is an amendment to the Climate Change Act that inserts a statutory duty within the Act for governments to um, owe a duty of care to young people, which means that when making decisions, for example, to approve fossil fuel mines or open up new projects, that they would have to consider the health and well-being of young people as a paramount consideration when making those decisions. So if with all the evidence available at hand, they are able to form an opinion that making this decision would be a tangible risk to the health and well-being of young people, then they would be empowered to not make that decision. Have we seen action like this around the world? I know we spoke about this a few years ago and uh, in different countries around the world watching what you were trying to push in that court case. Has there been other action around the world? 
Yeah, absolutely, Dave. I think it's really important to stress here that this is not an international anomaly. We're not asking Australia to break ranks here and legislate something completely unheard of. There are 161 countries around the world that have legislated that children have the right to a healthy environment. Um, Countries such as Wales have gone even further and they've established a Future Generations Act and a Future Generations Commissioner with the specific role for that commissioner to be scrutinising the impact of all legislation on young people and really making sure that no legislation is contradictory to the best interests of young people. Um, That goes even further than what we're asking. I think that it's been internationally recognised that young people are the ones taking this world forward and if there is one job that our elected representatives have, it's really to make sure that we can do so and that we can thrive in an environment like generations before us have continued to. We actually spoke to the Future Generations Commissioner from Wales uh, last year and it was really interesting hearing how that country is dealing uh, with future generations with things like climate change. So there's been this public hearing today in Parliament, Angela, about the amendment, the proposed change. You spoke at that hearing. How was it? Yeah, it was definitely an experience I've never had before. It was initially quite intimidating to be looking senators in the eye and really fully advocating for this bill that I have advocated for for the last four years. But it's not lost on me that this is a level of access into one of the country's highest institutions that young people don't regularly get. And so it was a massive, massive opportunity. I was really, really grateful to be able to share my experiences, to be able to share my perspectives, my fears on climate change. And um, yeah, I just hope that myself and all the the young people on the panel will listen to. Let's have a little listen of some of what you said. It has not been an easy road at all and I have seen so many of my friends, so many of my counterparts who I've started with in the school strike movement or in the youth climate movement drop out because of this lack of access. Anjali, I found that moment really kind of profound. You talking about the personal impact this kind of advocacy and activism has had on you and your peers. Can you explain to us what it has been like over the past few years? Yeah, so that statement was in rebuttal to um, a proposition made by someone um, on the committee that young people do have access to the country's highest institutions. And I guess the point that I was trying to stress is that young people by and large, really, really do care about our future. And we do do what what we can through school strikes and through, you know, social media advocacy and all the channels that we have at our fingertips to make our voices heard and to um, advocate for protections that we see fit for our future. Unfortunately, when when young people continue to throw themselves up against this brick wall to demand legislative change and feel like we're not being heard, then you drive them down one of two paths. Now, the first one is the path that I've been driven down and that's where you continue, you become more and more energised, more and more radicalised and you look for even more ways to make your voice heard and more ways to spread your message. But the other one is the path, unfortunately, I see most people go down and that's the path of cynicism, which is very, very valid because when you spend so much time, so much energy calling for the protection of your basic human rights in the face of an existential crisis that threatens so much... And you just feel like the people who are making the decisions for the world aren't listening to you. That personally is so draining and there's a clear pathway from there to burnout. And I think that's a great failure. And I've seen lots of my friends, lots of people I love go down that path and, you know, refuse now to engage in climate politics, which I think that is really sad because as young people, as the people who are taking this world forward, who will be sitting in these seats in Canberra soon enough, we should be engaging with our futures and we should be encouraged to do so. 
This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with advocate Anjali Sharma, who is uh, one of the people leading the fight to make the government more accountable uh, for future generations when it comes to things like climate change. Angeli, how do you stay passionate about staying with this fight? Because, I mean, you just said it's very easy to become disillusioned. Is there something that you have within you that you always turn to or you always think about that keeps you motivated and wanting to keep fight for this stuff? Yeah, for me, it's always going back to the why. And that's really, really cliche. But for me, the why is always my family. Um, I was born in India. I moved here when I was only 10 months old, but I've left all of my extended family in India. Um, India is a country that is on the front lines of the climate crisis, undoubtedly. Um, particularly in recent years, we've seen horrific climate impacts, floods and heat waves often in quick succession, really devastate the country, really take lives, destroy livelihoods, leave it really, really hard for people to rebuild or to safeguard themselves before the next n- climate disaster. So living on the other the side of the world for most of my life has concocted this really strange mix of anger and injustice that I guess continues to energize me every day to do what I can to use the mechanisms, the avenues that I have at my fingertips to continue to advocate for those most vulnerable in the face of climate change. I mean, some of the stuff you spoke about today in that hearing was the personal impacts and you just making it clear to those politicians saying, I've been a teenager fighting for this and it's had an intense toll on me and my even personal life, academic life, school, study, all of that kind of thing. It must be so draining. Yeah, yeah, absolutely is. Um, I think days like this, it's energising because it's so amazing to be able to sit in the country's lawmaking institution and, like, have my voice heard. But there are absolutely days where it feels like just pointless to be doing this work where I feel like I wish I just had the opportunity to be a kid and to not continue to have that eagle eye on the news or um, you know be able to focus on my social life my academic life my sporting life rather than jumping on zoom meetings and organizing protests and you know where days where my inbox is clogged up by people um, you know criticizing me criticizing my message my race my gender whatever they can whatever they really can as internet trolls um, where I just feel like it's it's draining. What's what's the point? But then again, that's where I go back to the why. And I know that I have this um, sense of passion, sense of responsibility that kind of prevails over all of that. It's been a long day. It's obviously a huge fight as well. Years this fight's been going for you. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Climate activist Anjali Sharma, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Hack. It literally is like a modern day fetal mania. On Triple J. Yeah, for those who celebrate, we know Swiftmas, it's in full swing. Sydney, about to cop this massive hysteria that's taken hold of the country. Saw it in Melbourne earlier. With all the media coverage, all the rolling updates on her flight path between Melbourne and Sydney, it does feel like Taylor Swift is the biggest thing to ever land in Australia. But while she may be the latest cultural giant to capture the attention of the Australian public, she is far from the first. Reporter Holly Tregenzas hit the archives to find out a bit more about our past when it comes to music. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. This is the sound of Beatlemania descending on Australia 60 years ago in 1964. It's incredible at the moment. All you can see in front of us here are 
screaming teenagers. The mob is just fantastic. There are police sirens going at the back of us. People are screaming. A couple of people on the side here, I notice, are laying in the gutter. Obviously, they are not very well. They look as if they have collapsed. The teenagers are mobbing the car. People very, very were obsessed. As in, 300,000 fans went to the airport in Adelaide to greet them. Level of obsessed. Is in Burke Street, and the fans are going really mad. Here they go. Here come the Beatles. And experts say these last few weeks of T-Swift mania is the only thing that's really come close to replicating that level of hype. And like when they landed in Adelaide, there was like 300,000 fans trying to see them. Like that's crazy. But there wasn't like Twitter and um, like TikTok and stuff. So it wasn't that same feeling of following the every move and having a million people talking about it at once. Dr. Georgia Carroll has a PhD in fandom specialising in Taylor, which honestly, slay. We're feeling it on the global scale, not just the Beatles are now in Sydney, the people in Sydney are excited. It's kind of, we're excited about Taylor being in Sydney as part of this global story about Taylor that we've been experiencing for over a year. Okay, so there's no doubt that Taylor's huge news. Like, she held her biggest ever show last Friday in Melbourne in front of 96,000 people and then went on to repeat it two more times. And now it's Sydney's turn over four nights. So how does she compare to other big names that have made Australia feel, briefly, like the centre of the universe? Music writer Bernard Zool has a reality check for Swifties. This is big and it is everywhere and we can get carried away with it, but it's not its not unique. One of the key things about recognising the element of hysteria in a tour like Telesfit, uh, and by that I'm not referring to the, to the audience, but to the media and public response around it, is to remember that this kind of thing happens, you used to say it would happen every decade or so, there would be one big act. But before you get out your beaded pitchforks to attack this man, he does have a point. There's this thing called recency bias, and it's basically when your brain gets carried away and favours recent events over historical ones. It's possible the era's tour feels bigger than anything we've seen before because we either weren't there for, or maybe we've forgotten about the other stuff. Taylor Swift and people like her, artists like her, are a bit like Buffy Vampire Slayer. In every generation, one will come. And there's this. While Taylor's Era's tour is officially the highest-grossing music tour ever, artists like Dire Straits and Ed Sheeran sold more tickets to more shows in Australia. In 1986, Dire Straits did a mammoth 21 shows in Sydney at the Entertainment Centre, which has a capacity of about 10,000. The 950,000 tickets that Dire Straits sold is more than Taylor Swift is selling on this tour. And in fact, Taylor Swift's not even selling as many as Ed Sheeran did six years ago when he sold a million tickets. ACDC also sold more tickets on their 2010 Australian tour. The key difference is the profit, even if you factor in inflation. She's selling tickets for multiples of $100, uh, while ACDC in 2010, they may play six to 600,000 people, but their tickets were 100 to $150. Bernard Zool, who, by the way, is a Taylor fan too, totally gets that some people are getting sick of hearing about Taylor, but he reckons it's worth keeping in mind that her largely young, largely female audience deserves the same respect that we give to fans of the other big acts. One of the reasons why Taylor is so uh, so much of a lightning rod for, for criticism is that she speaks to and for an audience that isn't usually given 
credit. Teen pop and the pop music made for, for young people and particularly young women has always been denigrated, has always been seen as lesser. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Holly Tregenza with that story. Really interesting to hear people's experiences. Remember some of the stuff that might have forgotten over the decades. Big musical acts that have come to Australia and felt like they've stopped the country. Hey, that is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll be back next time. Shake up tomorrow. Looking forward to it. I'll catch you then. See ya. Hack. Hack.